Thanks, Andy. Yeah, I remember you having quite a dark face as I drove off. I never tell anyone that I'm not going to actually lead the retreat, so I sort of give the impression. I lie by inference, as my parents have taught me how to do. Hey, um, about uh, two years ago, I was getting into bed after a long day, and I sat down after putting on my pyjamas, and uh, now I know this is quite a personal fact, but I feel like we're family, so uh, as long as it stays between us. Um, I noticed a slight discomfort on my posterior. Um, You know, it was a bump, or a lump, or a boil. And the more I thought about it, the more uncomfortable uh, it became. Have you ever had those things you just can't stop thinking about it? And despite all of my attempts with my wife's tiny makeup mirror, I couldn't for the life of me see it. Uh, I became quite obsessed Uh, with it. And as I sat up there in bed, I began to fret about the nature of this mysterious lumpy bump. Now, uh, my wife comes from a sort of medical background, so she was trained as a speech-language therapist. And if you were to speak to her, she would say, more qualified than a doctor, you just sort of get less pay. And uh, all of a sudden, she started getting curious as well about this whole thing. And so you can imagine my delight when she offered, as only a long-suffering partner could, to grab her high-res camera. And, I mean, some of you will have done this. So you're all being very quiet and awkward about this. I know, I know what you get up to. And she said, why don't I grab my very expensive high-res camera and and we can take a photo of it. So, So we can see it and we can put your mind at ease. Isn't that kind of her? She was so worried about me, but she was also intrigued. Let me put your mind at ease. Well, naturally, I was keen, and she got the perfect shot. I'm not going to go into any more details, but she got the perfect shot. And then I remember sitting up in bed together. It was such a special thing, almost as good as an alpha marriage course. As we spent the rest of the evening romantically zooming in and out of the small hilltop. Well, you know how digital cameras go. Weeks pass, and you forget about the photos you've taken. We did a few family photo snaps here and there of the kids and all of that stuff. Anyway, a few more weeks pass, and our Christchurch Anglican Synod comes around, which is, you know how your AGM is coming up? It's like a synod is sort of like the AGM for a diocese, so all of the Anglican uh, churches in an area. And this 60-year-old Canadian chap called Brandon, uh, he wears bow ties and he talks very slowly and he speaks very loudly. And he's working as sort of the communications guy for our diocese. And he asks if I can bring my camera along and take a few photos at Synod. And so I'm taking a few shots here and there. I don't know if anyone's ever been asked. You know, you, get, you feel pretty full of, of authority when you get asked to be the official photographer of such an esteemed event as a synod. You know, I'm taking a picture of Bishop Victoria smiling behind the altar over there, and there's someone eating a cream-filled pastry over morning tea over there, and a millennial talking to another millennial over there, and, you know, all the kind of stuff. And as synod ends and I'm heading out the door, uh, uh, you know, kind of forgot I'd taken the photos, uh, 
Brandon stops me and he asks if he can quickly get the photos I've taken off my camera uh, to put them on his laptop. And so we're laughing. I'm sitting by him and we're laughing like old chums. It's so good. And, uh, you know, he plugs the camera in to his computer and he begins to toggle through past the images uh, one by one as he's looking for the relevant photos of Synod. And one of the things about Brandon that's fantastic is he's offering some rather loud commentary as each photo goes. So Brandon's not going to do things quietly. He's, going to, he's really going to give you his thoughts over what he's seeing. Click. Oh, you and Sarah look so nice. Thank you. Click. Oh, that's a lovely lake. Where is that? Click. Look at Edith. She's growing up so fast, isn't she? Click. And there was sort of an, an awkward silence. And it's at that moment I realized that we never deleted those images. Click. And for him, it's not entirely clear what we're looking at. <laughs> Click, but it's uh, certainly human. Click, and now he's saying nothing. Click, and we both realize that we're looking at something we shouldn't be looking at together. <laughs> Click, and then finally, Bishop Victoria's face appears on the screen. And we're both uh, clearly relieved. And in this moment, no words are spoken between us. A sacred space has opened up. No words are spoken. And neither of us ever mention a shared experience. Everett, we've never mentioned it to this day. And we try not to hang out uh, too much. You know, sometimes um, it, is, it is better in certain situations to say nothing. It's actually, that's the wisest thing one can do is to say nothing. And as I've reflected on uh, Brandon's response to the most awkward of social situations, uh, Proverbs 12 uh, came to mind. I'll make sure this goes. There we go. There we go. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And for a number of reasons, I thought this was quite a relevant passage, actually. Uh, but my, man, I remember, I didn't tell my wife what had happened for six months. You know what I mean? And then when I did, she was so devastated uh, by what, we have a new policy with our camera, of course, now. Um, you know, it requires great wisdom to know when to speak and when to hold one's tongue. Uh, and this morning, as we continue on our series on simplicity, uh, I'm going to be exploring what it might look like to uh, simplify the one resource that most of us have unlimited access to, uh, and that's our speech or our words. What would it look like to have a, an attitude of simplicity when it comes to our words and speech uh, in an appropriate way? And I did think it was funny that Andy sent an email yesterday uh, saying, well, I'm expecting a very, very, very short sermon from you, uh, which um, is ironic because that's never going to happen. But um, as I reflected on my life so far, I realized, and you may have guessed this, 
but that a lot of my life has actually been dedicated to speech. So I was the breakfast host on a radio station in Christchurch for a number of years and, and also one in Nelson. And yesterday I got out my phone and did some fast calculations. And I think I've spent something like 7,000 hours speaking on the radio and I would have done four to 5,000 interviews with people over, uh, over, over my life. So like a lot of it has been spent honing speech, saying words, filling up the void, uh, doing all of that stuff. And yet, uh, because of that, I've gradually come to appreciate the elegance and the power of simple, straightforward speech. Uh, one of my favorite forms of expression is haiku. You know what a haiku is? You know how that works? The 757? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or the 575, rather. And I'd love to share, I've written three of them for you today, which I'd love to share with you. Um, uh, as a kind of an elegant way to show you the elegance of words. Here we go. It's my title page. Haiku. Pentecostal friend. How do you worship so long? My arms tire quickly. It's profound, isn't it? This is the second one I wrote especially for Newt. It's true Anglicans can be awkward, pompous, strange, but do try the port. <laughs> and this one's dated a little bit, but I think you still still follow. Young adult Christian, you clicked attend on Facebook, but will you show up? My dad also loves uh, words. Uh, I was passionate about the haiku, but he loves to discover words from other languages that communicate complicated ideas that if we were to try to explain them in English would be very, very difficult. And here's three of his favorites. Uh, this one, the feeling of being alone in the woods. I'd love an English word for that. Isn't that great? Uh, there's another one. The act of scratching your head in order to help you remember something that you've forgotten, which is from Hawaii. And this is a great one. I love this one. The Jayas, a joke told so poorly and so unfunny that one cannot help but laugh. Isn't that great? I love that. I love that stuff. God, I've laughed at some of those. Amazing when we open Scripture uh, how simple words can contain and communicate so much meaning, like the Bible reveals the power that God has given to words. And I was just thinking of three really short phrases that we might find in Scripture that are loaded with huge, huge meaning. Uh, the three that came to mind for me was, let there be light, right? Very simple sentence, but it's loaded with all, you know, this, you know, if someone says that, you know exactly what they're getting at, that it's, it means much more than that. Uh, the second one that came to my mind was this one, he wept. This idea of Jesus' profound compassion for Jerusalem and for all of us. But he wept, right, is a profound short sentence. And the last one I had is, it is finished. The words of Jesus on the cross. That there can be just incredible power uh, in words. And, and so our words are important and our words are powerful and just a few words can build people up, or we can tear them down. With our words, we can give life and offer healing, or we can offer death and be death-dealing to someone. And I wonder who here doesn't carry childhood wounds 
of somebody's poorly chosen words, right? I think most of us haul around some sort of wound that as a kid someone said something without thinking and for whatever reason it struck incredibly deeply into us and we've spent the rest of our lives sort of trying to work out that, work out that wound. The author of James uh, doesn't mince uh, words about the power of the tongue. I mean, he's just brutal. James is brutal on this, but I kind of love it. Uh, James says this, A small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. And in the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all of the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It's restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God, and so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. And so uh, we see, I mean, James has this kind of uh, clear view of the importance of the tongue and for us to become aware of it and to think about what good and what harm, what blessing and cursing can come from it. But my, you know, my favorite passage that I've reflected on is Ecclesiastes 5 around this, which says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And what is the sacrifice of fools? What are they talking around when they talk around the sacrifice of fools? Well, I'm a professional in the sacrifice of fools, for the record. It's religious-sounding talk that is initiated by us rather than by God. You know, it's, it's when we speak, uh, and even though it sounds religious, uh, it's when we should not have spoken. It's when we should have stayed quiet. And it kind of sounds like almost every young adult home group I've ever been in, uh, if you've ever beaded one. It's just sort of a never-ending sacrifice of fools that goes for about three hours. I love uh, my, what my absolute favorite disciple is um, the disciple uh, Peter, and he was an expert in the sacrifice of fools, even better than me. And in Mark 9, we read of Jesus taking uh, Peter, James, and John up a mountain uh, where they witnessed uh, Jesus being transfigured into dazzling white with Moses and Elijah appearing. You know the story? You know where Jesus goes up and there's Moses and Elijah? And I've always I've found this story kind of fascinating because imagine... Imagine Moses and Elijah finally getting to meet Jesus. This would have been a big day for them, right? And I've always wondered if they had name tags, because I don't quite know how Jesus knew that it was. I don't know how everyone knew who each other was. They must have just had a profound sense. And I don't know how the disciples knew who they were seeing. You know, if you imagine, it's a very confusing thing uh, going on. But they're there being transfigured, dazzling white. And in verse 6, it says this. This cracks me up so much. It makes me laugh. Uh, verse 6 actually says that the, in brackets, the disciples did not know what to say. Because you wouldn't, would you? Fair enough. Whoa, this is pretty trippy. We're, whoa. But Peter speaks anyway. I just love that about Peter. Like, everyone's like, I, I don't know what to say. And Peter says, I've got an idea. Right? And Peter says, I'll build a shelter. And uh, no one asked him to. No one said they were staying. 
I mean, and do you know what I love about Jesus? He just sort of looks and he just completely ignores him. He doesn't even respond to it. And can you imagine that Jesus is there and he's got Elijah and Moses, and Elijah and Moses are like, who are these guys? Who are these monkeys? And Jesus is like, I know, I know, they're so embarrassing. And guess what? I'm leaving them to run this whole thing. And they're like, oh, this is never going to work, Jesus. This is never going to work. I just think that's so funny. Uh, that um, it was entirely a sacrifice of fools. It was entirely Peter's own human uh, religiosity at play. You know, he wanted to be seen saying the right thing. He wanted to do the right thing. And I've found that we can fall into this trap. Rather than waiting upon God and listening for the Spirit's prompting, so often we jump the gun, uh, we assert our own will, we assert our own ideas, our own insecurities, And so often, it's all about this desire to take control of a situation. And so we use our words to feel like we're back. You know what I mean? We use our words so that we feel like we're in control of a situation, which we're probably not that in control of, when maybe we shouldn't have. That's what I'm trying to say to you in terms of simplicity of words. Sometimes we shouldn't try to get control back for ourselves using our words. Sometimes that is the sacrifice of fools. And uh, we live in an age where there's no shortage of words. Um, if, we were to, if we were able to print off everything currently written on the internet onto A4 sheets, it would weigh uh, 122 million tons, right? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of words going around. It's a lot of people saying a lot of stuff. And I think the, the fake news world that we live in as well, it means it feels sometimes like words are cheap and that they don't have the power or the meaning. So how should a follower of Jesus use words, and how might we seek first the kingdom of God in our speech? Uh, One of the ways I think we can think about this is actually how might we start to live simpler lives with our speech? What would it look like for us to live simpler lives with our speech? But before I give you some ideas, some things I've tried with simplifying my speech, I think I need to finesse this whole topic. Because here's the thing I've learned. When you preach sermons on abstract ideas, everyone loves it. If you actually start preaching a sermon on anything that will make any difference to anyone's lives, people start to get a bit upset. And I don't want to entirely upset you, but I don't care because I get to fly home. But I still don't want to, so I need to finesse this because I think you need to hear, is this something that God's calling you to, not something that's being put upon you? You need to to hear hear that right. Uh, firstly, my experience has been that more often than not, Kiwis don't speak up when they should. So, like, the danger of New Zealanders wildly shooting off their mouth and telling everyone what to do has not normally been a day. It's nothing I live in fear of. I live in fear of my bump, not of New Zealanders suddenly stepping up and saying loudly what they think. You know what I mean? That doesn't keep me up at night. And um, I, could count, I just couldn't count the amount of times I've asked a group of Kiwis if they'd like to close in prayer, if anyone has a, a thought to share or a question, and you're met with the silent room of doom. You know I mean? That's sort of the New Zealand move to take any speaker out as we are, you know, it's like a game of chicken. You won't believe how long we can stay silent and kill you off for. So, like, so you know, it's not like we're known as, um, <laughs> as the, yes, the great outspoken nation. Um, So I want to qualify a few things before we move into simplicity of speech. 
Speaking less is not for everyone because uh, more, than, uh, more than ever, some people actually need a voice and they need to be heard. Um, colored people and women and anyone who doesn't look like me basically needs to be heard more. I've always been in positions of, of privilege and I've always been given platforms. That's very much my story. And uh, I'm used to being heard and I'm used to being listened to. I, in fact, assume that people will listen to me. You know, in a meeting, when I speak, I assume that people will take me really seriously and listen to me. It, it's, and it's not given to a lot of other people. And that's just, that's like part of, part of who I am. So I think the call to simplify our words is particularly for the powerful and the privileged among us. I am the person who should be quiet more, and maybe not you. Do you hear me? So that's a really important, I think, important thing. Uh, it should never be used as a tool to keep the oppressed and the downtrodden in their place. I could see things like this being used very, very harmfully uh, when we start to say, well, you should have simple speech, my friend, right? I, so it should always be something that is a personal choice, not a mandated one, something that we actually decide that we feel that God is leading us towards. And I'm also not saying that Christians shouldn't speak into complex issues because more than ever we need intelligent voices of faith engaging with the complexities of life. You know, like, remember the euthanasia and the cannabis referendum? We actually needed intelligent voices, right? We didn't need everyone to have incredibly simple speech at that point. We needed the right voices to be articulate and to come and to speak. So I'm not saying that. And so before I talk around what simple speech might look like, I want to challenge everyone here not to remain silent when we are speaking up for the oppressed, marginalized, or those without a voice. We should speak up for those. We shouldn't stay silent if we feel a strong sense of the Holy Spirit prompting us to speak. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between our egos and the Spirit, but if you have this real strong sense of the Spirit and you're not just manipulating that, I think speak up right? It's important to speak if the Holy Spirit's prompting you. We should speak up if someone asks us to share our thoughts or to share our unique expertise or experience or wisdom to bring insights which are needed for our community. There's a lot of coy people out there that you can't make them speak and you desperately need them to. And I actually think if you get asked to speak, you should speak. Our community needs you to speak. So that's not a reason not to. And you should, if you've gotten into the habit of never speaking up out of fear or cowardice of what others will think of you, you should learn how to speak. So I think that's a really important part of, of it. But for many of us, like me, you have become people who too often speak first and think later. And if we're honest, many of us offer the sacrifice of fools every day without even thinking about it. And I must say, for those of us who are external processors, this will sound really confronting. So I know some of my friends will be saying, you don't understand me, Spanky. I need to speak. It's how I work things out. The, the thing I think sometimes we haven't thought about if we're an external processor is, what is the impact that I'm having on myself, on others in the world by unleashing this torrent anytime I want? You know what I mean? So actually, it's around being starting to be considering, considering that stuff. So here's my pitch for you. What are the benefits of starting to have an attitude of simplicity when it comes to speech? Well, here's the ones I've found when I've managed to do it. Firstly, it releases me from having to comment on absolutely every issue in a complex world, which I find actually quite exhausting. So sometimes I just go, you know what? I'm not going to say anything about that. 
Because I can't say everything about everything, and I'm tired of trying to have an opinion on everything. Does that make sense? That's quite liberating. It's like, oh, it's so nice. I can say things about a few things. I don't have to say things about everything, unlike some of my friends who appear to, you know, they have sort of a 10,000-point manifesto on every social issue. I could just not say anything. And I found, I found a real sense of liberation in that, that I could stay quiet rather than speaking. Gosh, it was so good. You know, the next thing I discovered is um, to simplify my speech, release me from my own egotism and narcissism so I could live freely and lightly in the world in Christ. How about that? Because rather than having to think about myself all the time, I suddenly could like rest in Christ. And I suddenly, you know, being a little less narcissistic was strangely nice. Have you thought about that? Gosh, it's quite nice to be released from that. You know, I think about myself a lot, and it's quite nice to think about myself just a little bit less. I actually found real freedom uh, in that. Uh, third thing is I found that it gave space for others to be heard who I never thought had any opinions at all. I just thought they were idiots. But as it turns out, other people have things to say too. The problem is I was talking all the time. They never had a chance. They hadn't practiced as much as me as finding any gap in the conversation and diving in for 15 minutes. Do you know what I mean? Like convolvulus. I was like the convolvulus of conversation. Found any gap and grew up through there, right? So actually, I discovered there were some other opinions different than mine, and they were quite delightful, and they are quite different than mine, and actually I quite enjoyed hearing them, right, rather than just hearing myself, because I mostly knew what I was going to say, but they had some different things. It was quite interesting. And... The last thing is the benefit of it is it moved me towards a life of integrity. Does that sound good to you? Now, integrity is a bit of a swear word. Here's a better way to put it. Would you like to be an authentic person? No one's going to say no to that. Uh, it lead me towards being a person who's more about the doy and less about the hooey, right? That actually the way I was going to live my life was going to be about how I put things into action rather than talking a heck of a lot and not doing much. And I actually found that a real challenge, that before issuing comment on things, maybe I should actually put something into practice, and that might give me the credibility to say something, rather than just having lots of opinions and hoping that if I say it long enough, I might accidentally do something one day, right? And so I found, I found these are real benefits, but there was a cost to it, and it's a horrible cost, and you need to be warned. I didn't see these coming. So to simplify your speech, there was the cost. Two big costs for me were this the huge discomfort of being unheard. Imagine not being heard. I don't exist if I'm not heard. I've had people who've come on silent retreats and because they can't crack any jokes and they don't know how to look smart, and when you've taken away their silence, you've taken away their identity. Does that make sense? And the, the, the pain of not being heard for some of us was just terrible. But there was something even worse than not being uh, heard. It was the discomfort of being misunderstood. What if someone thinks I'm meaning something that I'm not and I can't respond to clarify it? What if they start thinking the worst of me and I'm not in there to tell them it's this and it's that and it's that? You know, that feeling of being misunderstood and thought the worst of and thought wrongly. I mean, that really got to me. Do you know what I mean? I really, I really wanted to litigate these things when I started moving towards the simplicity of uh, speech. But then you know what I remembered? First thing, being unheard. Most of the world's unheard. Most of my friends that live in slums, they're unheard. Right? Solidarity with the poor means you get used to being unheard. And when it came to being misunderstood, I thought of Jesus in front of Pilate. 
You know, how, you know when Pilate said, well, who do you say you are? And Jesus just wouldn't engage with that. Jesus was incredibly comfortable with being misunderstood. Incredibly comfortable. Do you understand? Incredibly comfortable with it. It gives me the shivers when I think of, of, of Jesus sort of having Pilate. I just think, Jesus, just tell him you're the son of the living God. Come on. And Jesus just won't engage with that. You know, he knows, he knows his place, and he knows when to speak and when not to. So um, the spiritual practice that we've sort of uh, put up for you is um, around the practice of silence. And one pathway towards having simplicity of speech uh, is that spiritual practice of silence. And I do wonder, silence is positive for some people but quite negative for others, and I wonder what silence means for you. Does it mean peace and quiet uh, because the kids are out, or does it mean danger because the kids have gone quiet? Right? What does silence mean for you? Um, uh, does it mean your partner is giving you the silent treatment? Uh, does it mean that your dad was really angry, you know, that your parents had had an argument and that actually a silent house was a very unsafe place? Does it remind you of those car games where your parents tried to make you shut up by saying who can be the quietest longest and actually it feels like your power is being taken away? Or does it sound like boredom or does it sound like a waiting room? I wonder what it sounds like for you. Is silence a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I take uh, lots of people away on these uh, three-day um, silent retreats. I see my good friend Phil Trotters here. He, was, he, he did the workshop for our first silent retreat when we had absolutely no idea what we were, uh, what we were doing. And we take them, as Andy said, down to the, uh, our Peel Forest uh, Eco Monastery, uh, which is just out of Geraldine. And lots of Christian teachers have noticed that silence as a spiritual practice is a helpful way to help us move towards the simplicity of speech. And that's because it helps us to relinquish control of our tongues and to make friends with slowing down the bandwidth between our mind and our mouth. Does that make sense? If you go on a long period of silence, you go through all that misery like Andy did, and then you can come out of the end actually slowing down how fast our mind and our mouths kind of go, go together. And in fact, here's the best bit. One bit of wisdom I was taught when I was first doing my silent retreat um, was if the idea of being silent makes you feel sick, and some of you here will feel sick by the very prospect, say, of doing three-day silence or four-day silence, if that idea makes you feel sick, then it's probably the thing you need the most because it helps those of us who feel like we need to constantly speak, learn how to say the right thing rather than just the first thing. If you love speaking, isn't it about time you started saying the right thing rather than just the first thing that came into your head, right? And so there's this idea that actually if you really love it, you have to learn how not to use it. Sometimes you need a longer silent retreat uh, as a way to begin the work as you learn how to quieten those inner voices and therefore quieten your outer voice. But um, it's, some of you have done a, a longer retreat, and I'm sure in the future some of you will. What I was really interested in is what might simplicity of speech mean for you in this coming week? And I'm sorry, this is horribly practical. And it's really going to rub some of you guys up the wrong way. But I can't avoid it for a whole sermon. And I'm afraid that Jesus wants to rub you up the wrong way. So it's just how it is. I'm sorry. Um, but what would it look like this week for you to simplify your speech? Well, I have two ideas for you. Two classic go-tos when it comes to simplifying your speech. And the first one is practice speaking plainly. And this involves practice. And it's not, it's not that it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to enjoy it necessarily. 
So, uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why don't you say something in one sentence rather than nine? Right? Um, why don't you say things in much more considered sentences <laughs> that are actually loaded with meaning rather than just talking and talking, hoping that you'll accidentally strike across something? What would it look like for you to be uh, considered in plain speaking? Um, my good friend Richard Foster in the Celebration of Discipline says this about simple speaking. It's quite confronting. He says, obey Jesus' instructions about plain, honest speech. This is what Jesus says. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Gosh, isn't it? It's Jesus saying this. It's not just me. It's Jesus suggesting this. If you consent to do a task, do it. Avoid flattery and half-truths. What would New Zealanders do? Make Honesty and integrity, the distinguishing characteristics of your speech, reject jargon and abstract speculation whose purpose is to obscure and impress rather than to illuminate and inform. Plain speech is difficult because we so seldom live out of the divine center, so seldom respond only to heavenly promptings. Often fear of what others may think or a hundred other motives determine our yes or no rather than obedience to divine urgings. Then if a more attractive opportunity arises, we quickly reverse our decision. But if our speech comes out of obedience to the divine center, we will find no reason to turn our yes into no and our no into yes. We will be living in simplicity of speech because our words will have only one source. Do you get where he's coming from? So one of the, if we live in a very kind of technocratic world where we have lots and lots of things to say, he's saying, just start speaking plainly. Start saying what you mean and start simplifying it as a discipline. And I think that's very good. It's challenging, but it's very, very good. The second thing uh, is you can practice saying nothing at all. Sometimes say nothing. Practice not being heard. What does it feel like? What does it bring up in you? You know, you're heard in most places. Try it out. What does it feel like to not be heard? Uh, think about not posting something online. Maybe the world's not going to be better off for having not heard your opinion. Maybe it'll be fine uh, for you not to post everything. Uh, look at where you have loads of influence already and consider what would it look like in this meeting to say nothing in this meeting. Practice listening. Practice not offering a criticism of something or someone when you didn't think it was very good. Go to a terrible movie with some people and leave the movie having not passed any comment on how bad that movie was. It doesn't make any difference to the movie. It just, it just it grooms a critical spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just like, you know, you come, you might think my sermon was terrible. You don't have to offer a criticism of it in the car. You can just let it be. Isn't it? See, this is countercultural in one sense, but it's fine. I've learned that I don't actually have to criticize everything. It's okay sometimes to just let things be. The world won't fall apart without me getting my knives out into it, right? It doesn't have to be an endless loop of feedback. I can just say, that's what that was. Interesting, right? I could say that. I don't have to do that. And I think this is like totally radical. You know, uh, when you don't know what to say, like my friend Brandon looking at my weird human photos, you don't have to say anything. You can ask yourself, do I really have something to say in this moment or am I just filling space up with my voice? Am I speaking truth or am I speaking tripe? Am I offering healing with my words or am I dealing death with my words? 
Now, God has given us words, and they are precious and powerful. And so the question I have for you this uh, morning is, what is God saying to you? Maybe God is saying to you, and I really do believe this, that you need to find your voice. You're too afraid of being heard, and so it's time to learn how to speak up. And you need to speak up. You need to start doing it, and you need to practice speaking. But maybe if you're more like me, God is saying, you need to learn how to live more quietly and simply with your words, to resist the temptation to offer the sacrifice of fools. You need to learn how to let your yes be yes and your no be no, and to create space for the quiet voices in the room that God needs to be heard. So as we move towards uh, communion, I'd like to offer uh, this prayer for us. Creator God, we thank you that you created us from your word, and we thank you that you have given us the gift of words. Help us to be attentive as we seek to work out how we might use our words, how we might build up others, but also when it would be better not to speak or better to speak the plain truth. Give us the courage uh, to experience being misunderstood, to experience at times not being heard, and help us to be attentive to those who have the quietest voice in the room. We thank you for these simple elements of bread and wine and the way that you come to meet us without a word being spoken in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Pinky. Let's give him a round of applause. Thanks, mate. Hey, um, let's stand together. Stand up.